Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. I've talked a lot on this show about the great joys of having my mind blown, especially by something when I was least expecting it to. I've had many moments of going into something thinking that it's not going to be that great, and when it is, it makes the experience all the more sweeter. I think a great tool in being able to experience moments like this is pessimism. I believe that it has served me quite well throughout my life. Now you may ask, how might someone develop such an acute sense of pessimism? For me, it was often having my expectations ruined early on. For example, when I was in 8th grade, my school went on an overnight field trip to Rock Eagle in Eatonton, Georgia. And on the last night of that trip, there was going to be a dance. And because music was such a part of my identity, my teacher asked if I wanted to DJ the dance. I was definitely into that idea and started planning my set list, carefully curating a group of songs and sequencing them in a way to maximize the potential for what I believed was going to be the greatest dance party of all time. So I opened up the dance with a song I knew would get people going, Hot Wax by Beck, from his classic record, Odelay. But by the time I played my second song, which was Bowtie Daddy by Frank Zappa, my classmates started complaining, and I was removed from my position before I even had a chance to play Atomic Dog. The rest of the dance mostly consisted of the Quad City DJ song from the Space Jam soundtrack played on repeat and my seething resentment towards my classmates. And I would continue to experience similar situations to this throughout my formative years, you know, through relationships and other pursuits. Having people consistently ruin things I've put effort into or really cared about has allowed me to go into many situations with pretty low expectations, which, like I said, can often lead to me having my mind blown. There are so many pieces of art that I love that I know I went into with either low expectations or none at all, and therefore experience it in such an affecting way to which it would stay with me. Like, I love the feeling of thinking that I know what something is before sight or sound, and then having it totally prove me wrong. And it was with this attitude that I first entered into my love affair with the music of Chris Cohen. Now, I had known of Cohen through his work with Deerhoof, and liked that band well enough, but didn't really think it necessary to hear the guy's solo work. And if you've ever heard Chris Cohen's records, you know how profoundly stupid of a statement that just was. My awareness of his solo records came at a pretty chaotic time in my life to where I thought I wouldn't be able to handle any music that was going to cause me to think. I'd been living inside my head so much during that period, and the last thing I wanted to do was think, especially while listening to music. But by chance, I heard Cohen's song Optimus High, and as you can probably imagine, it blew my mind. It was so good. I could not believe what I had been missing out on. It was the type of moment from which I derived so much joy. And with that, I decided to dive in. I put on Chris Cohen's 2012 solo debut, Overgrown Path, and I listened. This is the story of that record. Hi, I'm Chris Cohen. Um, I recorded Overgrown Path and played all the instruments and sang. 
Chris Cohen grew up in Los Angeles, California, and from an early age, began playing music. Uh, you know, I grew up in the suburban part of L.A., the San Fernando Valley. Um, it's a lot of really big, big blocks, not very tall buildings. Um, it's a real uh, driving kind of place. People don't really walk to things in the valley very much, or most of L.A. Growing up here, I was pretty pretty lucky pretty privileged um my my father worked in the music business so my family was kind of well off for a while and then he quit and uh, my mom was a school teacher i was encouraged to be a musician pretty much from the beginning i started playing drums when i was three i don't really remember a time before i you know i pretty much yeah i, I always was playing. I mean, I guess if you can call it that. I mean, I I, I banged on a drum set. Um, I can't really remember before that. I didn't grow up in a culture of a lot of other musicians. So my mom was a she was a musical theater person, um, and she sang opera when she was a teenager. So she had some musical training. My dad had some musical training. Uh, he was a composition major for like a year. But I, neither of them played music anymore. And actually, there weren't that many musicians around me. I mean, there were a few here and there. But I really struggled to find um, people to play with, and it wasn't like I grew up in a in like a culture where like everybody played. I mean, you know, my sister took piano lessons and she played music. We didn't play together. She didn't, you know, like I when I would practice the drums, she would get mad at me for making too much noise, and I would get mad at her when I couldn't practice drums. So we never <laughs> we never played together. Prior to joining his first band at the age of thirteen, Cohen begins learning to play other instruments as well as experimenting with home recording. started on guitar at about 11. Uh, my sister was, was playing guitar. She, she was taking guitar lessons, and then she went away for the summer to summer camp, and um, I started fiddling around with her guitar. And then I sort of figured out, right around that time, I figured out how to like how to do overdubbing without... I didn't even know about four-tracks or multi-track recording yet. I mean, I knew that there was such a thing as multi-track recording, but I didn't realize there was like a consumer version of it. Um, and so what I did was I had um, like a boombox. I had like a couple different tape recorders with speakers and built-in mics. And I would like record a drum take on one and then play it back over the other and play guitar along with it, etc. So I figured out how to do overdubbing pretty soon after I started playing guitar. And it was sort of like I basically learned to play guitar just so that I could make songs. I mean, I'm not even sure I was writing. They weren't songs, but I just had the lyrics and things I wanted to play. And I just realized that you could make a whole thing by yourself and just pursued that, um, just guitar. And then I got a bass. And before I got a bass, I just would tune the guitar strings down. And like a year or two later, um, my dad got me a Tascam Porta 1 to 4 track. So that was, that was when I first um, learned about, uh, about multi-track. It is also at a young age that Cohen begins writing songs. When I was little, I kind of like had these, I would draw pictures of bands and be like, this is my band. And I would sort of make up these little songs that were, you know, 
theoretically the songs of that band. Like I remember I had this like new wave band in my mind that was called the blocks. <laughs> I had a song to me. I thought it was a song. It was like, um, it was like, <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. It was called tropical. <laughs> and, uh, there weren't really any other words. It was just like tropical. <laughs> so I had these kind of songs in my mind. So I guess I thought of myself as a, as a songwriter. Though he has spent practically the entirety of his life playing music, and much of his adulthood recording and performing with many notable acts, Cohen did not initially consider pursuing a career in music. I mean, I never thought of music as a as a career path or a way to make money or anything. I, I mean, um, my assumption was that if you made good music, you were never going to be successful. What I thought I saw, like you know, the world of my that my dad was in as a music business person and all around me I just saw like oh bad music is what sells if you want to make good music you have to do it like underground style or whatever that meant I didn't really know you know I didn't realize how how simplistic that thinking was but um I kept doing music just because I that was my connection to to the world or how to you know make friends that was just my my identity but I never thought of it as a job and then um I was really surprised when I, you know, joined Deer House. We were actually making some money playing music. It really did not occur to me because I had totally written that, written that possibility off completely. I was really not thinking about the future. If I had been thinking about it, I think I would have been really worried. And I mean, it was a good thing that it didn't occur to me to worry about that because, um, yeah, it might have stopped me. In 2000, Cohen starts the project The Curtains, which would lead to him joining the San Francisco-based experimental noise pop band Deerhoof in 2002. When you hung on number one It's the wonderful Don't be mean to see the queen You get caught in the machine You caught in the When I moved up to Oakland after college, I started doing the curtain stuff, and then I'm, I was a big Deer Hoof fan, and I asked them if we could open for them sometime, and then we started playing shows together and just became friends, and then John and I started playing first, I believe. We started a band called Natural Dreamers, and then Greg and Satomi from Deer Hoof joined the curtains, because John was gone. He was, out, he was gonna be out of the country for a couple months, so um, I talked them into joining the curtains for a little bit, and then and then when John came back, then they asked me to join Deerhouse. So that was right before Reveille came out mm-hmm. in 2001 or two, I guess. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, and then I kept doing the curtains while I was in Deerhouse, and then I kind of stopped after a while, and I started it up again when I left Deerhouse. As a member of Deerhoof, Cohen would make three records with the band, but by the end of the tour for 2005's The Runners 4, Cohen decides to leave the group. There were like some issues coming up in the band. I think that um, it just wasn't really a stable situation for me. I realized that it was not really my band, even though I like contributed to it. And um, the band functions, I think, still like collectively. So we shared everything equally, and um, the language around the band was really like, "Oh, this is our band," and you know, it was never like. Like, if I'd said, oh, this isn't really my band, they would have been like, what? Like, you know, I mean, 
that wasn't how we talked about it, but I started to realize that I was not like, I wasn't really, I mean, it's complicated. I wasn't going to really get to do the things that I really wanted to do, mm-hmm. which, you know, I wanted to like, I wanted to be more, I just wanted more space to, to learn about, you know, writing and recording. And, mm-hmm. and I just, I just realized that I wasn't really going to have that in the band. And, um, I, I started writing new stuff and then that just became the curtains. And then I was like, you know what? I don't really want to spend all year, um, touring and not playing this music. So I left, um, after we finished touring for runners for, I mean, we're still friends and, um, it ended like pretty, pretty peacefully. It took me a couple of years to really like sort through what had happened. It was kind of, it was pretty, there was a lot of pressure on us and, um, it ended up being like not a very happy time. And, uh, it took some years to kind of like process everything that went down, but um, yeah, it was a great experience being in that band, and um, still really, I love those guys, and still it's very important to me. Following his departure from Deerhoof, Cone would go on to perform with many notable acts, such as Danielson, Cass McCombs, and Ariel Pink's Haunted Graffiti, as well as release records with his new project, Crypticize. But after releasing two records with the band, Cone would begin to focus on writing solo material. Um, Cryptosize, I started it with my then partner, mm-hmm. uh, Nadell. And um, I don't know, we split up and I didn't really want to keep keep doing it. And um, that was also kind of a thing where I just felt like I wanted to write new stuff and be totally, um, wanted to do it in a different context. The band was really, it was super stressful, actually. We were really kind of like trying to make it in a way, which sounds crazy if you hear our music. There was like a lot of pressure on us to like, you better make this thing pay or you have to like give up music. Um, it was it was kind of stressful. And I, I just wanted to do something that I wasn't hoping to gain anything from exactly. That's where um, I started writing the Overground Path song. Um, I think it was 2009 that I started writing those songs, probably. Or maybe 2010. I don't know. I... I started living by myself for the first time in a while, and um, I got a piano, and um, had a little bit of savings. I didn't. I was like, I feel like I was probably working part time in a restaurant, but I just remember I had a lot of free time, and I was like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna write, but not for like an album or not for like a band. I'm just gonna like write some stuff and just do my normal you know, do my home recording thing. And I, I, the first song that I wrote was Monad, um, which I, I mean, I think I wrote everything on piano pretty much. And I'm not a great piano player, so it's a lot of my songwriting kind of relies on just like losing my fingers around and I don't always know what I'm doing. Um, the words pretty much always have come last. I spent a long time on the music. I mean, I spent a long time on the words too, but um, it's kind of a separate process. The music is like totally in place. Not necessarily even the recording, but just like I have like um, the chords and the melody and the meter and the t- and the beat and everything are really kind of like primary. Um, the words then are like a whole other layer. I can change the music a little bit with you know at that point, but but it's mostly like the music is pretty much set. So the the words really follow the melody. It is also around the time that Cohen first begins work on his solo material that he decides to move to Vermont. Um, I was following somebody who's who I've been seeing since then uh, Kate is my girlfriend's name um, she Kate was teaching at Bennington College and I followed her out there I kind of like needed to get out of LA and I wanted to work on this farm that was out there 
And um, so I lived there for two years, and then we moved back to LA after that. But um, uh, yeah, I just I wanted to change, and it was really I'd, I'd spent some time, you know, visiting there off and on, and I was just kind of enchanted with with Vermont as so. It also, you know, it seemed like a good place. Like I mean, you can get a studio space, like a a room in an old like mill building for like nothing. Um, so it turned out to be a good place for me to like set up a studio, although there was not really anybody for me to play with there. I actually had a finished version of the album. I mean, what I thought was finished. Um, I forget, like maybe I didn't have all the singing done. I recorded like, I mean, I had like every song, a version of every song when I was like, okay, this is, this is the album. Um, when I moved away from California in 2011 and then I was driving across the country with my friend. I mean, in the course of playing it for him, I just started to realize that just by getting like his feedback, I was like, uh, I don't really like this anymore. I was like, okay, when I get settled, I'm gonna like just redo the whole thing in Vermont. And I think I might have saved like some aspects of it. Um, but yeah, so other than that, um, everything was recorded in a couple different places in Vermont. And I think most of the stuff that had piano, I did in LA. I did, I did add a little bit of piano. I'm trying to remember. I, I, I know I, I reported a little bit of piano at, at Bennington College for a couple of things here and there. So I did have. But I didn't like write. At that point, I wasn't writing songs really. Um, once I moved to Bennington, I, I think I wasn't like writing on the piano. I was the songs were already pretty much written, and I was re-recording versions of them. So I didn't really need a piano. After Cohen gets settled in Vermont, he goes about setting up his recording studio. So yeah, I didn't have tons of gear. I mean, I think everything what I moved out to Vermont with was like whatever fit in my Toyota Corolla. Yeah, with my friend too who drove out with me. So I had a an iMac. Um, and Pro Tools and the Digi O2 interface. Mm-hmm. I think that was all the recording gear I had. And like a couple of mics. Um, I think I used like five mics on the drums, probably. I learned things by watching friends do stuff and just by doing it myself over and over again and like getting it wrong many times. Trial and error, being like, okay, this is where I like to put the mic for the, the snare drum or whatever. And Kind of, um, I'm pretty conservative. Like, if I find something that works, I tend to just keep doing that. Um, and that was how my recording setup kind of became, you know, what it is now, I guess. I'm not super specific about the gear, but I am very specific about what it sounds like. I mean, I have, you know, lots of ideas in mind of, like, records I want it to sound like. I know that I constantly have, like, there's certain Rolling Stone songs that I always have in my mind like the production of like street fighting man and um and jumping jack flash are two stone songs that um something about the like acoustic guitar piano the amount of like the mass of stuff that's kind of mushed together in a certain way um the way that the parts are constructed around each other there's something really like really special in those recordings that i always go back to i don't know what that is if it's also just maybe from my like it's a thing from my childhood or something that I just have a special mystique about. Um, but yeah, those, those ones I just keep, you know, I keep going back to, I mean, I'm trying to think like what other things might have been, I might have been thinking about when I was doing that. Um, I know some things I was kind of trying to do like, I mean, you know, I guess probably, all three of my solo records are sort of drawing on like early eighties, like FM rock kind of MOR type 
type of stuff like Foreigner and Fleetwood Mac and stuff like that. I mean, I'm not like I don't I don't like love. It's more of like a I'm reaching back to this like childhood memory of them than the actual things themselves. Um, but like just in the kind of drum sounds I like, and um, you know, like I mean, my taste is like hyper specific. But I I've learned that there's a lot of different ways to get what what I'm looking for, and I've never had that much money to spend on gear or it just seems like a waste. I guess my thinking at the time was like, why buy a thousand dollar mic if I can like, you know, if I can live for, you know, four weeks for a thousand dollars, like four weeks of like writing time, recording time is more valuable. Like I have tended to just use whatever I have laying around and like the stuff that I have is like kind of, um, like back then I think what I had was, um, the, like the fanciest mic that I had was this road, um, condenser mic that was like, you know, maybe like a $200 mic that somebody had loaned me one once and I was like, oh yeah, this sounds good and I got one. But otherwise, it's like the rest of the mics are like, like I have an SM57 was like, uh, my dad, <laughs> my dad used to work at this theater um, in LA and I think he like maybe kind of borrowed one from the theater. Like I think when I got my four track, he like gave me that SM57 or something. So it's like this is what I had, I've had for like a really, really long time. And like all my mic stands are, you know, Especially back then, where just like everything was like just put together with like duct tape and stuff. So, and then he made a record. Overgrown Path opens with the track Monab, which acts as the perfect introduction to the sounds of this album, especially if you had no context of what a Chris Cohen record sounds like. With its opening, it's easy to assume what you think is the song's direction, but as it moves into its verses, the song becomes something totally unexpected, which is pretty indicative of a lot of the moments on this record. And not only is Monab a great example of Cohen's ability as an arranger, but also greatly displays his gift for melody. I remember about that piano lick first. Um, uh, I was kind of thinking of like the soft machine, um, like soft machine third or first two albums. 
I guess, yeah, I was kind of like doing sort of like Terry Riley via Soft Machine type of minimalism. I'm trying to remember. I mean, I really liked how it sounded on a piano when I wrote it. And then as I was recording it, I tried a lot of different things that didn't work. And I ended up ultimately, like, I think I added like a software organ. Oh, you know, it was something else I was listening to a lot while I was making Overground Path, like 70s. R.C.V. Moore stuff, and um, I think that guitar intro, you know, I was kind of trying to do an R.C.V. Moore thing. I was taking the drums and running them through some, like, plug-in. Um, I think it was, like, this plug-in that was, like, guitar pedals, and it was, like, um, it had, like, distortion, envelope filter, and delay or something. And okay. I was running the drums through, so it was, like, turned into real, like, kind of trashy sounding and then it was getting sent through a filter so it was like I had kind of a wah 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 kind of sound to it and then um, a bunch of really fast delay like da, 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 da. there's a lot of this like kind of like just kind of noise stuff in the background that's that's actually the same drums that you're hearing but just you know sent through this processing so um, and I, th- I might have been like speeding you know playing with the, the knobs uh Everything on Overground Path was done, or I think every, almost everything. I mean, maybe not not Solitude, but was done with uh, Click Track. And I think what I did, probably even yeah, probably even back then, I would probably like record like just the chord changes, like nothing too suggestive of any particular rhythm or way of playing it, but just sort of like like an organ or something that just holds down the chord changes, um, along with a metronome, and then I would play drums to that. And then, you know, start adding maybe a different keyboard or guitar or bass sometimes. But I, yeah, I would usually start with drums playing to a, a demo of it with a click track. And then it would always get off the click track and then eventually just throw out the click track and then just play to the drums. But um, it's really hard. I'm not a really steady musician on any instrument. So there's a lot of like fudging and editing and stuff that I end up having to do. And usually things get a little weird. Yeah, I mean, I I wanted that song to be... I was sort of thinking of like this kind of like beginning of like the Big Bang or something, or sort of something like cosmic, sort of like outer space kind of thing. <laughs> I guess it's about like individuality or just your idea of your of yourself. Like where does your consciousness begin and end, I guess. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's, I mean, I'm, 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 it's... I'm a little bit bashful about that. It sounds pretty hokey, but you know, I'm just going to be honest. That's that's what, where I was at. I was I was reading um, this book by Rudy Rucker about the fourth dimension. Sunrise, sunset. Where I am at this moment. Is the Today, I travel out, and the life is so different. No shadows in the way of me, no shadows in the way. Sometimes a blue, sometimes a blue 
Following Monab is the subtle and sparsely arranged number, Solitude. The song has a wonderful early 70s Beach Boys vibe to it, and is a beautiful mixture of Cohen's understated vocals, steady bass, and droning keyboards. That was the Pro Tools plug-in, what is it called? It's the free one, like analog synth that came with the Pro Tools. Uh, like vacuum or something i forget the name it's like a it's a really simple monophonic analog synth yeah i'm using that to use the drones and then i'm like playing with the filters a lot um and the pitch there's like a bunch of them that are like doubled and sort of moving together then i think maybe on top of it is also this um a lot of the keyboards i used on the whole album was this white casio like kind of toy casio keyboard i think it's called mt65 or mt something that is also on there on Solitude, and I'm running it through a bunch of plugins that are like guitar effect pedal plugins, or like an amp simulator or something, with like a ton of reverb. And I think I'm playing with the pitch knob on that, also on the keyboard. So there's that, then there's piano, there's bass. Yeah, that song, I mean, it's free tempo. So the ba- everything is kind of following the bass in a way, like when we do it live, that's how it is. Um, this one I wrote on guitar, and I was planning on doing this kind of like, um, like instead of picking it, you like take your fingertip and you just like kind of like rub the strings to make this kind of like scratching, kind of um, like a violin that's kind of doing tremolo type of effect. Um, I was originally planning on having the song be like just two guitars that are doing that together and playing these chords it's still there but what i ended up running through these filters you can't even tell that it's a guitar probably but it's there's that sound it's like a kind of sound um that's what that turned into so that's kind of in the background um i think it comes in part of the way through of the song so that was originally like the song started out just that way like i wrote it on guitar and i didn't have a piano to write on that one came came about differently than the others and originally solitude was gonna be just an intro to caller 99 they're in the same key and um, originally I was thinking it'll just be like a little short thing, but then it kind of turned into a whole song. But I think of those two songs as sort of like one thing still. Um, I don't think of my songs as being like about things per se, like they're, you know, they're supposed to just be like kind of sound poetry. Like when I wrote the lyrics, I had just broken up with Adele and I was like hiking. And I remember just like, <laughs> like watching the sunset from this trail. And that was where the first lines came from. Um, but yeah, it's, the song was just, you know, me being depressing. Casio drum beat 
and a phase-shifted guitar. Collar number 99, with its subtle touches of psychedelia and Latin music, is another track from Overgrown Path, in which the structure of the song twists in unexpected directions. That beat is, uh, I think it's like just pressing two keys at once or something. It's a, it's like a, or it's like a fill that was part of a bossa nova setting or something. And I found that little fill thing. I liked it. And um, I had the um, the riff, like the bass guitar. Doo -doo 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 -doo. I had that kind of already. I'd had that for a while. Yeah, I don't remember like which came first, the beat or the. I mean, I, don't, I, I guess I just liked that beat, and then was like, oh, I could fit that together. The rest of the song. It was like a fragment that I'd had for many years that I somehow turned into a whole song. There's the keyboard that, you know, they just kind of, it's playing the chord changes. And then the guitar, there's a kind of a strumming guitar in the background. Uh, there's actually like three, I think there's probably like three guitar tracks on that song. Um, but yeah, the guitar and the keyboard are like kind of close together. I recorded that actually part of it, like the, the main part of the song after the intro. Um, I recorded it, my parents used to have this cabin near Yosemite that, um, I recorded, like, I went up there for, for, like, a week or two before I moved to Vermont, and I think I recorded the drums there, and then, um, and then it was, and at that time, it was, like, I, there was a piano there, so it was also, I had a piano, it was, like, piano, bass, drums, and guitar, and it, I was afraid that it sounded like a Santana, like, it sounded too much, like, like, it was too on the nose or something for, like, uh, like the Grateful Dead or Santana or something. <laughs> I was kind of, it felt like a little too like American Beauty or something. And I threw away that version. But I think what I, I think I kept the drum and then everything else was done in Vermont. Um, so it had like kind of two lives. Like, you know, I had this whole other version I thought was done. Like, I want to say it might have even had cowbell or something. It was like very, I was really thinking of like salsa kind of piano, just kind of salsa rhythms, pianos and salsa music will do. And, and um, I really, I was trying to find a way to put that in there, but it just ended up sounding cheeseball and like not, not really for me to do. You know, it sounded like I was like I was dabbling too much. But there's still a little bit of that rhythm in there. You know, I was super into like, like I was like I watched this movie. Um, it's like a funny all stars movie called Our Latin Thing. It's like early '70s New York. Like you know, all the greatest um, salsa people like having this big jam session and. I was that I was really I mean I remember working on that song just kind of sort of wishing I could like get some feeling of that music in there somehow. I really didn't have a good ending for the song. I didn't know how to end it. I kind of just went for a jammer. Yeah.
following caller number 99, with its bouncy rhythms and concise arrangement, is the pop gem Roller Coaster Rider. Yeah, I just, I got really into, like, researching roller coasters. I had a lot of time on my hands. And the name came from, actually, Greg from Deerhoof. I think I said something about, like, being, like, manic or something, or ups and downs or something. I said something about, like, being on a roller coaster, and he, like, called me roller coaster writer or something. I, I, he probably didn't even remember it, but I think it was, like, it was just, like, something he said offhand that I ended up. That's where the name came from. Um, like I had a really tricky time playing the shuffle beat. And I made a whole version. Okay, first I made like a demo version that was pretty rough. But it was cool. It had a cool feeling about it that I was hope, I was trying to keep. But the more I was trying to make it, you know, the more I was trying to like play it well, I just got really uptight about the shuffle. <laughs> I just couldn't, I really was not, I could not swing, you know. And I ended up making this version of it that was like, I literally pasted in every single drum note because I just wanted it to be like really tight or whatever. But it sounded like, it really sounded bad. I mean, I I just kind of had to go all the way there to hear why it wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like, I mean, you could say it was a total waste of time, but it did allow me to see the value of real playing. And I mean, to the extent that even, you know, a one person overdubbing themselves is real which i don't know but um yeah it's not like i'm like they're never like complete takes you know i'm always editing a lot but i tried to get back to the feel of that demo and it just took it took a really really long time for me to get the the shuffle feel right on the drums anyway so um once i finally got the the bait you know the rhythm tracks done like the arrangement did not come easily it wasn't it really wasn't working for a long time and there was a lot of times where I was like, oh, am I going to have to throw this song out? And I really didn't want to. 
because I really I thought the chorus was good, but I never and I still don't really like the verse that much. The verses, um, I think that what I did, the way I ended up making them work, I think was the only way to save it. Like, and I, I mean, I like it. Like, I'm, you know, it works to me. But um, there's something about the the song. I guess for me, was all about the chorus, and I felt like the verse. Sadly, I felt like it lacked, and I just tried to make it interesting with the arrangement. I guess so. I managed to like feel like okay, this is I can deal with this, but it's never. It's funny, like it's never been. It's never been my favorite song, um, but the things that I like about it are like I really like the intro, and I like the chorus, and the verses. I just feel like are there to get you to those parts. It was really, and I remember I really agonized over the words too. <laughs> like it just became this. I remember um, my partner Kate tried to. She helped me. She tried, I, I tried to get her to write the words for a while, and she wrote something that I didn't. I didn't like, and then it was. Yeah, I just. I remember just going through real hell trying to save the song. Um, but um, and another thing too was that the the thing that was really special about the demo that I ended up I constantly went back and forth to the demo trying to compare it when I was mixing. And recording also, just trying to get the whatever it was I liked about the demo. And part of it was that, that on the intro, the guitar was just really, really loud, like kind of too loud. It was like mixed kind of too loud, but in a way that I thought really like was what make, made it cool. I had to try to get that. It, also, the way that it starts, I think there was something like, there were some weird little like idiosyncrasies that were like mistakes that just are part of the demo that I became really attached to. And I ended up basically like recreating for the real version. So what you hear is like, me kind of like trying to redo these accidents that happened in the demo that I just I liked. And I know what you're probably wondering. Does LA-based singer-songwriter Chris Cohen enjoy actual roller coasters? Um I do. Yeah, I like roller coasters. Yeah. I don't I don't like the ones I don't like the those those uh buccaneer the pirate ship ones that yeah. swing back and forth. I don't like swinging. And I hate Ferris wheels. I'm terrified of Ferris wheels. Yeah, I get worse with heights as I get older. In a just world, the track Heartbeat would be the slow dance song at every high school prom. Like many of the songs on this record, Cohen is able to do a lot with very little. I don't think there's a wasted note on this song, or maybe even this entire record. And by the way, um, this is my favorite song on the album. Question from within. I wonder, can 
started on piano. Um, I did a lot of different versions that did not work. I re- yeah, I re-recorded the whole thing in Vermont. Um, and my studio at the time was, um, there was in the next town over, um, there's this old Dodge dealership that they rent out parts of it for like shops, people's like workshops and stuff. And I rented out the, um, the, like the, the head office of the dealership. It was, I mean, it seemed like it was like the boss's office or something. It was like this like shag carpet, like, um, laminate paneling, you know, like deluxe suite from the sixties or something. And I recorded the drums and the, and the bass in there. I, I think on heartbeat, I was just thinking about, I wanted the drums to be like expressive, but be like not too busy and just like real like stripped back, but powerful. Like, um, these are, uh, these solo albums by Jimmy Webb. How Blaine plays on all of them, I think. Like these early 70s Jimmy Webb albums are another thing I was probably really heartbeat, probably that I was really drawing on. And it was really, I just remember that the thing, I, I don't know what was so hard about the song, but it was like just, um, I wanted the tempo to breathe. Like there's parts where it kind of slows down a little bit. And it was really hard to like navigate that with the click track and everything. I just remember I, I became really obsessed with like getting the right feel and the right drum sound and everything. And I just, I became very like fussy about it. But then in the end, um, it finally like reached a point where it was like, it actually, I felt like it worked, but it was really hard. And there's some stuff in the end that I remember there's like this, um, it sort of sounds like a 12 string guitar or something. It's actually a sample of a 12 string guitar that I did with keyboards and I'm not much of a keyboard player, so like even just like playing the arpeggios and everything was like really challenging. I went deep into like a MIDI wormhole of like, you know, like straightening out. I mean, that's another thing about this song and maybe about some of the other ones too. Um, as the tempos got weird, I ended up just doing a lot of like sliding things around in Pro Tools. I do a lot less of that stuff now. And I think, I hope that I'm a better, I can play a little bit better now. But um, I remember back then I was really doing a lot of that stuff and getting kind of obsessive and it, I don't know if that actually made it any better I mean I, I'm trying to create the illusion that people actually playing together and um, I like to picture that it's like a it's like a bar band like they're like people that play together all the time they're you know like it's four people maybe five people at the most it, I mean it's created totally by it's an illusion but um, I have this like thing of like it had to, it has to be like something that could have been played that way you know, even if it's, even if I did it all on the computer, faked everything, made it just, the image that I have in mind is like, yeah, something that people could do in like a small group, just because that's what I'm most familiar with. Like I didn't, you know, grow up like playing like concert, like orchestra music or, you know, I'm kind of like, that's my format, sort of small bands. So when I, yeah, like when I think of like how I want my music to be played, it's usually like something like that. Much of a good thing. Summer's here, it never goes away. Ba 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 ba
If you've listened to this show before, you know all about my deep affection for the well-crafted pop song. Optimus High is just that. It's kind of a perfect pop song. I mean, there are so many amazing aspects to it. It's got a really cool melody. It's got those great drum and bass fills. It's just such a great song. I mean, it alone could be worth the price of admission, but that's what makes Overgrown Path such a strong record. It contains a song like this that's surrounded by other equally great tracks. A lot of the credit goes to Miguel. We wrote this song together. Um, she had this idea that we were going to, like, just as an exercise, try to copy a song that we liked, and we picked, um, it's not going to, this isn't going to make any sense, probably, when you hear this, but um, don't, don't talk, put your head on my shoulder from Pet Sounds. We were like, okay, like, let's write something that's mo- somehow modeled off of that. Um, da, 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 da. I don't know, for some reason, like, that became, da, 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 da. I don't know, it was just, like, the shape of the melody or something became that. And, uh, yeah, it's really hard for me to even remember how that how that happened. But we, like, in several ways tried to model it after that, that song. I, I think I think the way it worked was like we kind of we wrote the verses together, and then I feel like she wrote the chorus. I mean, the real like classic parts of that song I think were hers, um, and the way that we arranged it, um, like the structure of it. I remember that was that was all her, and um, we did we were playing it in Cryptosize the last month or two that we were doing Cryptosize, and we started recording a version of that drum take became the drum take of my version. Yeah, it's kind of like a Cryptosize song. Um, there's a high school by our house where we were living called Optimus High School. Um, and that's where the name came from. Yeah, Nadell wrote most of the words. I wrote, I think I wrote the pre-chorus, um, which I tried to just kind of like, I kind of just tried to like tuck it into, like like fit it into what I thought her song was about. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, too much of a good thing. Um, I remember that it was like, we moved to LA in the summertime and it was really depressing. It was hard and depressing. I remember just being just sort of like, uh, like just the sun just sort of being oppressive. I mean, I'm from LA, but um, we were, we met in the Bay Area. We, I, I lived in the Bay Area for a long time, um, Oakland and San Francisco. And then we moved down to LA together. And I just remember, yeah, like not just being like LA, like, was sort of exhausting and harsh in a way. As we near the end of the record, we get the beautiful and dreamy number, Inside a Seashell. Cohen's gentle and lethargic vocal performance floats on top of a bed of angelic keyboard notes and reverb, all the while being held together by a subtle and steady rhythm section. Colliding 
I think all the keyboards were like software synths, and that was all recorded in Bennington. I think the version that I had before that was like just acoustic guitar, maybe. It didn't have drums, it was kind of a different thing. I guess I was trying to just, I was thinking of like kind of like, you know, music that was, it was just trying to make it, you know, go with the underwater theme of the song um, and just get, just try to make it sonically as trippy as I could or something. I mean, it was definitely probably thinking of, you know, like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds or something like those kind of arpeggio keyboard. Yeah, I think I was probably kind of unconsciously imitating something like that. Yeah, I mean, the lyrics are um, supposed to be kind of like, like you're in this dream. So I was trying to make it kind of like just thinking about like dream state. for catchy and unique melodies that once again allows Cohen to shine on the wonderful track Don't Look Today. But what also makes this track worthwhile is the great juxtaposition between its sunny melody and jagged guitar sound. writing this one on guitar and originally it was going to be it was in um, it was in three and that's why the melody has that kind of that part is like has kind of a um, three kind of feel to it Um, and then I I'm trying to remember there was a whole other version of it it took a lot it was really it was a lot of figuring out the arrangement there's just a lot of different parts in it that change really quickly so I remember just kind of like trying to figure out the different beats the different accents to hit on each part was kind of was tricky. I think I was trying to write these like little arpeggios that would like they were like counterpoint to the vocal melody and that wouldn't necessarily like step on it. Um, so there's sometimes they're like happening on different beats and stuff. Um, so it just sort of I don't know the guitar. It's supposed to be kind of just in the background making it prettier, but um, but I ended up. I mean, I remember it became really obsessive about those arpeggios being just so and so they're they're there to pay attention to if you want to but um 
hopefully sitting beneath the, the melody. Um, and I remember I recorded all the guitars I recorded through. I only had one amp. Um, I had this line six bass amp, practice amp, the line six lowdown. Um, and I recorded all the bass and guitars through that thing. It was like a modeling amp. Um, and I actually kind of liked the guitar. I liked playing guitar through it. You could get a little bit distorted. And there was at one point it started to kind of break. And actually the same one, I think I was still using that amp on the next album that I did. And I remember there's some song where you can kind of hear it breaking, but, um, I wish I still had that amp, but, uh, but yeah, the, the guitar sound is all, is all that. It's just the SG through this bass amp. The record ends with a sparsely arranged open theme. It's a song that fully embraces the melancholy that seemed to permeate below the surface of most of the tracks on this album. It's delicate and beautiful and nicely concludes Overgrown Path. put it on the album it, it, it's such a it's such a downer that you know if you put it if you put it in the middle you risk losing losing people it seemed to work at the end I, I mean I remember trying to you know different sequences and stuff and that seemed to be the only way to make it work but um, it was originally there's another version that I put out on a comp that has this kind of like lap steel guitar parts um, originally, I was kind of thinking of it as like a country song, and I think it didn't maybe didn't have piano or something. And then I went back to the I wrote it on piano, and then the version that ended up working, you know, I went back to kind of really stripping it back, and it's you know just that, just the piano and the brush drums and stuff. And um, I think I rewrote the lyrics after I moved to Vermont, and I remember being sort of imagining. You know, just sort of, I guess I was always around a lot. I was around a lot of snowy fields and farming equipment, and <laughs> I just my surroundings sort of probably suggested the, the lyrics. 
says that my dad played piano on it. I asked him to play with me on that song, tried to record it with him live, and um, he didn't really... He couldn't. I, I thought he was a better piano player than he really was. Um, it wasn't really usable, so I ended up. I credited him on the album, but I actually ended up redoing it myself. Don't tell my dad. This was like kind of like one of many attempts to try to, like, have a relationship with my dad. It was like, oh, we're gonna play music together, and he was like really. I think he was really touched that I asked him, and he he truly tried, um, but he doesn't like play anymore, so it was kind of a long shot. Once the recording and mixing were complete. Former Deerhoof bandmate Greg Sonnier travels to Vermont to help master the record. Greg came up from New York to master it at my house with me, um, and we spent a couple days doing it. And I mean, I think, um, I mean, the record would not sound the way it does without Greg. It sounded like basically like it does, but he took he put this like extra level of like polish to it that I could not have done. And he made it, like, it just, he made all the songs kind of come together, which is, as a musician, engineer of what you dream that mastering is going to do to your record that's, like, not perfect, he kind of, like, made it a lot more perfect. And um, a big part of that sound happened in the mastering, too. For the album art, Cohen adapted a piece from Vermont artist Dorothy Wallace Synth, which utilizes photographs of snowflakes taken by photographer Wilson Bentley. There was this guy in Vermont in the early 20th century who was like, um, he was a, a farmer who just like his hobby was photographing snowflakes with this like homemade camera. That he, I was just so fascinated by this guy. Um, and he's also kind of like kids in school, kids in Vermont, like learn about him in school and stuff. He's kind of like, there's like a lot of like, you know, state pride um, for this guy because he's like the first person in the U.S. to do that. His photographs are really, really beautiful. Uh, I was looking at books of them and trying to make design myself with them. He lived in um, Jericho, Vermont, which is near Burlington. And there's a museum there in the town that I went to, and they were selling this poster in the gift shop. Um, the poster shows how the different snowflakes form at different temperatures. And there's the thermometer that goes down the middle. And at the top, it's just a snowflake thermometer in this really cool font that's kind of, I was sort of knocking off. Or it's kind of like the font that I use. And um, I just love this poster. And I was like, uh, like, I'm going to find the person that made this poster. So I went on this kind of insane, I mean, it actually wasn't that hard. Um, I got her phone number and I called her and it turned out that she had actually was from the town that I was living in. It was kind of, it was really surprising. And not only was she from the town that I was living in, but as a little kid, um, she went to the school that my landlord was, um, she runs an independent um, school in Bennington and it turned out she was like her first ever student and this woman was really cool she um she just made it like as a project for herself and then the gift shop sold them for her um I just thought she should design my album cover finally talked to her she was like I don't really want to do that you can take my poster and just use that like if you want to like change the words or whatever just take it and use that and I was like really I tried to give her money she wouldn't take any money and um to get the post she was like oh go to my parents house which was in my town it turned out and we went, to, we went and met her parents, and her parents gave me these posters. And woman was a really wonderful artist, and we saw all these all these drawings that she had made. And um, it was, I just felt really lucky that she just gave this thing to me, and she just told me to do whatever I wanted with it. So I just changed the wording, and I kind of had to move things around to kind of re- make it fit the square format because it's actually the dimensions of it are actually like it's more like a kind of a tapestry. So 
the record, um, and originally I, I really wanted the record to be a gatefold, which was not in the cards budget wise. But, um, so the design is basically like, it would have been, I mean, if, if it were a gatefold, it would fold out into like more of like the dimensions of the poster. But so the cover is the top of the, what was the thermometer and the back is the bottom. So, so, uh, um, I guess that turned out to be a really long story. It was like this amazing stroke of luck that I just, I loved her poster so much. And um, I just uh, tried to kind of keep it in the same style as her design. Following the album's completion, Cohen sends it out to a number of labels, eventually signing with a New York-based independent label, Captured Tracks. Um, I sent the record out to everybody in the music world, and... I sent it to um, Matt Worth, who um, has a label called RVNG International, and he works at Mexican Summer. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm friendly with Julia Holter, who on, was on his label. Sent it to him, and he was like, "Oh, this is cool. It's not. I don't really put out records like this, but um, I share an office with a bunch of other labels. And this guy, Mike, at Capture Tracks, really likes it. You should talk to him. And when I talked to him, he was he was up for it, and that was the only label that, that wanted to put it out. I sent it to every label I could possibly think of, which was a lot. And um, it really, I was getting ready to just put it out myself or just, you know, I really wasn't necessarily, I didn't have huge expectations or anything, but it turned out to be um, really great. And actually it took me a while to decide to go with Capture Tracks because um, I had really been living under a rock. I didn't know, I had never heard of any of the bands on it. I don't know why I just was like, what in my mind, I mean, I don't know what I was expecting, but um, I just thought, like, oh, I should at least be like, you know, know some of the other bands or be fun, you know, be a fan. I didn't, I just didn't know any of the other music. And, and at the time, you know, the stuff that was really big on that, on Capture Tracks was like, you know, like really shoegazy. And um, I just was like, I didn't feel connected to the label, but um, I have to say, over time, like, I can't believe how lucky I was um, because they really, I think it really helped me reach an audience that was like, was like a good audience for my music that I didn't even know about. So, and, and, um, they were really cool about the, um, Mike wanted, I remember that they, they wanted me to change the, the color of the artwork to like, he was like, well, how about we do like, try it in like, like orange or blue or red, like replacing the color. Cause he didn't think it was like colorful enough, I think, or I'm not sure why it's almost black and white, but it's actually full color. There's some, you know, there's a, a range of, other colors in there but um i could tell they didn't necessarily like what i chose but they were cool with that and i really appreciated that because in the end i mean I'm pr- i mean i feel like i was definitely right i loved the cover i wouldn't i can't imagine it being any other way but they didn't give me any um feedback or things i had to change about it they were they, you know they totally trusted me and um so yeah it worked out well captured tracks releases overgrown path on september 25th 2012 and considering that he went into the making of the record with fairly low expectations, when it did receive attention upon its release, it was for Cohen an unexpected and pleasant surprise. Um, I was, yeah, I was really surprised. I mean, I was, you know, like I said, I really wasn't listening to a lot of contemporary music or like been a couple of years since I'd been going on tour or really like think like going for it in music world. I'd kind of like given up on music world in a way to just be like, I just want to do this stuff that I enjoy and I don't care if it's 
not in fashion. And um, so I wasn't really expecting people to respond to it. Um, and I mean, it wasn't like a huge, I mean, it was not a huge reception, like definitely, you know, more than I was expecting. And um, the more that I went on a tour and promoted it, like I was like, oh, there's like actually people have heard this record. And it seemed like being on Capture Tracks, I actually gave it some some context uh, that helped it. So it was cool. I mean, yeah, it was not something I was expecting. Like I said, I was ready to just put it out myself. And, you know, moving to Vermont, it was kind of like, uh, I'm pretty much, you know, my music career, if you can call it that, is, you know, it's not, I didn't really expect to continue going on tour and stuff. Mike Sniper, founder of Captured Tracks, once stated, that whenever I get depressed about running an indie rock label in 2016, I can take solace in knowing I put out two Chris Cohen LPs. And since the release of Overgrown Path, Cohen has gone on to release two other fantastic solo records, as well as do production work on albums by Wise Blood and EZTV. And in the near decade since its release, Cohen's feelings towards his solo debut are somewhat mixed. Not necessarily on the record, but more on the experience of making it. Um, I feel good. I mean, I did what I wanted to do. I I worked in a way that was probably not great for my mental health. Looking back on it, I'm like, I don't know if I would like do things that way again. I mean, I guess I kind of feel like it's a bit of a curse to... It's it's a mixed blessing, you know. I was able to do exactly what I wanted to do, but it was also like it took a lot out of me, and I don't actually have those kind of resources anymore. Like you know, then I was like, I was actually, I think I was still kind of living off of some savings that I walked away from Deerhoof with. Um, I wasn't, so I mean, I was in a situation where I could just like do whatever I wanted, kind of, and um, and now I think the thing of like having to do everything yourself making the cover and playing every single instrument and everything. Um, it was, it, it makes a special kind of, um, result, which I think is really cool. I, I love it too. I mean, I, I love, I love a lot of DIY music like that. And that it seems like those things can only be the way they are because of being done that way. But then in the end, um, I think it's too much sometimes for one person to do everything. And, um, I kind of feel like in the end it's come back to kind of screw musicians over because now people expect to get something that you do all by yourself for free. I think it's too much. I think it's, I think that there was a good side to it, but now we're kind of, now there's kind of a bad side. Like when four tracks first came out, it was great. Um, but then the flip side of that is like, well, how about you just always have to do everything on the four track and, um, and we don't want to pay any money <laughs> to like help you realize your your dream. You know, I'm kind of more like I'd like a middle ground, and I think I'm I'm kind of finding that like nowadays, I'm I'm able to get a little bit of help from other people, and um, I think that feels a little more appropriate. But that that record was was exactly what I wanted to do at that time, and um, I'm glad that I was able to do it. I'm glad that I I mean seriously, it felt like a victory just to finish it because. I worked on it for like three or four years or something. It just seemed, at the end, I was just like, I don't know if I'm ever going to finish this thing. And then actually having it be done and feeling good about it, that was really nice for me.
Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Chris Cohen for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy Overgrown Path and more from Cohen's discography at chriscohen.bandcamp.com, various streaming platforms, and capturedtracks.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.